people lead themselves. And that gets into issues of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, health, because there are countless examples, even a couple at Gettysburg, where the person in charge just wasn't physically and mentally at his best, and the consequences were near disastrous. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from General Norman Schwarzkopf. Leadership is a potent combination of strategy and character. I'm excited to have two guests today who are experts in military leadership, Colonel Tom Vossler and Colonel Jeff McCosland. Tom and Jeff are seasoned combat veterans with decades of leadership experience in the military. Today, Tom is a distinguished historian and certified Gettysburg expert, and Jeff is the founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. Together, they co-authored the book, Battle Tested, Gettysburg Lessons for the 21st Century Leaders, which released in 2020. Tom, Jeff, welcome. I'm excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Bob, it's great to be in with you, and uh, we're rapidly approaching actually the first anniversary of our book, and very pleased the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, Bob, great to be here with you. Yeah. I was going to make a joke about, you know, Battle Tested would be launching a book during COVID, uh, which I know... <laughs> <laughs> we'll get, but we'll get back to that. So yeah. um, you're both decorated uh, military veterans, and, and thank you both so much for your, your service to our country. I, I'm curious, what drew each of you to the military uh, in the first place when you enlisted? Maybe, Jeff, we'll start with you. Well, first of all, it was kind of a family expectation in many ways. I mean, my father was a World War II veteran. He'd been in both the Army and the Merchant Marine during World War II. My uncles were in the Army. Uh, one was in the Army Air Corps. Another uncle ended up being Marines during the Korean War and was at the Chosin Reservoir. I had an older brother who ended up going to Vietnam. So this is, a, course, family, this is a family business. Well, no, <laughs> in a way, not really a family business because um, these were not career military people. These were people, yeah. it was sort of, you did your service, then you came back to your community and raised your family and went on from there. And then, of course, Tom and I are both you know, children of, the, of that era, which meant there was a draft coming on, which is hard to explain to young people today when yeah. the military could, and did you get a postcard would change your entire life. That was part of it. Uh, so I had some interest in the military. And then finally, of course, for me, at least, I went to the military academy at West Point, which I was interested in. And my dad, God rest his soul, blue collar guy, had always told us, I'm going to get you guys through high school, which was more than my father could do for me back in the depression. What you guys do after that is over to you. So going to West Point was uh, a good way to get a college education at a at zero price, and then serve the military at least for a time, as was part of that heritage. And Tom, what about you? Well, kind of like Jeff, um, two things came together for me. Uh, one was the family experience. My my father's people came to this country from uh, Germany in the 1850s, so I had a great great grandfather and a great great uncle who served in the Union Army during the Civil War. My grandfather served uh, in the uh, in the New York State Militia during World War One. He didn't deploy, but he put on the uniform. My dad and his brother were both in the Navy, sailors in the U.S. Navy in the Pacific campaigns, World War II. And so at the time of Vietnam, the family expectation was that I was going to do two things. One, serve at some point uh, the country via the military. And the other thing was get a four-year college degree, which I happened to be the first in my family to accomplish. 
because I attended a four-year senior military college, the Pennsylvania Military College. There were seven senior military colleges at the time. You think of the Citadel, VMI, that kind of college. And so I graduated in 1968, commissioned in the infantry. And of course, first stop the following year was, uh, was Vietnam. But I was also interested in military matters as a child. Every English class book report I wrote was on a military subject. So it all, it all came together in that, in that way. Where did you both meet? Well, we met at the War College, which is right here in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where I live now. It's about 30 miles uh, north of Gettysburg, where Tom now lives. And I was the dean of academics at the War College, and Tom was the director of the Military History Institute, which is literally the Army's, Army's archives. And is the repository, for example, of the vast majority of the photographs you'd see in Ken Burns' documentary about the American Civil War. Uh, part of the War College experience, of course, is to develop strategic leaders for the, the military, not just the U.S. Army. There's a number of Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, and senior government civilians who attend. So it's really about strategic leadership development as opposed to solely being a study of war. But because of location, part of the thing we would do is every year take the um, war college students down to the battlefield for what we call in military parlance a military staff ride. And a military staff ride is done around the world using historical battlefields. And it's primarily to talk about strategy, tactics, and operations, but some of it also focuses on leadership. And Tom and I had done this innumerable times with various war college classes. In our discussions, we said, you know, this actually is a case study on leadership, good leadership and bad leadership, because we firmly believe that, you know, if we went out to a large organization, and Robert, you went with us, and we spent a lot of time and we had a lot of access, we could say some pretty clear things about how well or how poorly it was run after a couple of days. But if we happened to show up when that particular organization, whatever it was, was in a crisis, well, good leadership and bad leadership is going to stick out in bold relief. You can see it a lot more clearly. And a battle is essentially that, two organizations in a crisis. So we decided you could take this case study Gettysburg. You could dampen down, frankly, some of the conversation about strictly military things, tactics and operations, and talk about the leadership principles using those stories of Gettysburg. And over time, Tom and I developed that as a, a seminar we do for corporate leadership groups. In fact, we're going to do one tomorrow for a corporate leadership group. And after having done that for about 10 years ago, we sat down one night and said, you know, we ought to take this, what we're doing now on the field in this seminar, we've developed it so far, and now make it into a book. And that's how Battle Tested came about. Got it. And the book uh, really focuses on on Gettysburg. Uh, you know, you just talked about how you got involved with that. But there are a lot of famous military battles. What What is it about Gettysburg's history that's so, I guess, impactful to you, both professionally and personally, and that you think has has these sort of enduring lessons of, of leadership? Well, I'll say that, uh, that Gettysburg, you know, one of the participants in the battle, uh, much celebrated, of course, in the book Killer Angels and in Ted Turner's movie Gettysburg was Colonel Joshua Chamberlain, commander of the 20th Regiment from Maine. And in a dedication speech he gave, the dedication of the 20th Maine Memorial at Gettysburg in 1889, he made a statement that Gettysburg, he believed to be a vision place of souls. And uh, in fact, when I do battlefield tours for the public, uh, oftentimes the public comes here looking for their ancestors. Hmm. And, and, but, you know, with all the other Civil War battlefields uh, out there, Gettysburg is perhaps the most well-preserved and well-managed, well-marked, 
uh, and of course, uh, you know, all the books written about it. And so people are pretty knowledgeable about the battle. But of course, you know, the expedient thing is why we use Gettysburg as our case study is that we live here. <laughs> At least, I mean, like I say, I can go out my front door and I can see the battlefield from here. And it's just a uh, uh, half an hour, 45 minute drive for Jeff to come down as he's going to do here this afternoon and getting ready for our, our gig tomorrow. But uh, it, it is uh, one of those places that uh, uh, is hallowed ground and uh, people um, come here and we can put them in a, in a very active learning situation by walking the battlefield. And I would add that, uh, Bob, I always like to say, you know, we have fought an awful lot of battles in our history of the United States. Won some, lost some. I'd say on balance, we won more than we lost. There are two battles where I would argue the entire fate of the nation hangs in the balance, maybe even on a single afternoon. And those two are the Battle of Yorktown, which was a lot more close run affair than a lot of people realize. And I actually do a leadership uh, workshop for sometimes for corporate groups down there using the Battle of Yorktown. You, you lose it. Yorktown, and we might still be part of Great Britain. We might be using pounds instead of dollars today. Uh, the second one is Gettysburg, where on the afternoon of the 2nd of July, 1863, you could argue, and it's called the high water mark of the Confederacy, Pickett's Charge, that the fate of the entire nation hangs in the balance. If the Confederates were to be victorious at Gettysburg, well, then you can spin your history out from there. Abraham Lincoln very unlikely would have gotten reelected very likely there would have been an effort to negotiate a peace settlement and we would only be able to go down to Virginia and South Carolina with a visa today. So that to me is why this battle in Yorktown are of significance. And we, like I said, I do other things. I do Pearl Harbor. I do Watergate. I do a couple other case studies that are historical, but that's why Gettysburg. And then the second reason why Gettysburg, I think, is so terribly important, and we include this in the book and we include this on our seminars, is the speech going to the ceremony and talking about the speech. And the speech to me uh, is a classic example, and perhaps we'll talk about it more, of a leader seizing the moment. What is the right moment to convey a revised vision for his or her organization, in this case, the United States, and taking that moment to convey that particular vision? And I firmly believe that's exactly what Abraham Lincoln did on the 19th of November, 1863. So what's considered the the... Maybe I like both parallels and I am not up on my Gettysburg history, probably a little rusty. What's considered the sort of best and worst decision that day uh, for either side that sort of led to the outcome? Well, I think uh, the best decision, of course, this is a three day battle, but the best decision was made at the beginning of the battle by a uh, relatively uh, junior Union general by the name of John Buford commands a cavalry division of 2,400 men. As he rode into the area, sending out scouts, he located the Confederate forces before they got to the key road intersections, uh, uh, 10 major roads coming into the center of this town, which made it important. He's made a decision already. He's going to deploy his forces to keep the Confederates away from uh, that town, away from those, uh, the conjunction of those roads, allowing his army to occupy the key terrain south of the town. That decision is going to set the stage for the remaining three days and the eventual Union victory. Was it the decision from a strategy standpoint or the fact that sometimes it's just 
making the decision <laughs> definitively. No, it was it was from a strategy standpoint. Yeah. He knew he knew what he had to do is keep the Confederates away from the town and trade space for time. By time, the Union Army is half a day's march uh, south of him. He has to provide time for them to get there uh, for the battle, occupy the best possible terrain before the Confederates do. And so that's that's his. We would call it an operational consideration, tactics, operations, yep. then strategy layered up. But uh, that was his decision. And Jeff, what was the what was the worst leadership decision made during that battle? Well, the worst leadership decision made, and probably the, I think probably the most controversial, was on the late in the day on the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg. The Confederates have been successful late in the day. They drive the Yankees back through the town. They're being pursued by a corps commander by Richard Ewell. Richard Ewell is a corps commander, but only recently a corps commander. He's only been promoted from being a division commander to a corps commander in the last few weeks. This is his first big battle, just returned from being wounded and him having lost a leg. Robert E. Lee will show up on the field at some distance, and Lee is actually pretty upset because he had told his commanders, don't get decisively engaged until we're all together fearing they might be defeated piecemeal. But he sees that we're winning. And so he sends a message to Yule, which is a very famous message called the discretionary order. Take that hill if you deem it practicable, do so. In other words, push the Yankees through Gettysburg, take Culp's Hill, Cemetery Hill this afternoon. Yule gets that particular message late in the afternoon. And for a host of reasons, his men are tired. They're somewhat disordered. He does not do that. Okay, he does not do that. And many people then from then on, have always criticized Richard Ewell and believing that he lost an opportunity for the Confederates to win the battle and win it on the very first day. Now, you can lay that particular failure at his feet, but actually, I would almost think I might lay it at the feet of Robert E. Lee. You know, oftentimes, Tom and I will talk to corporate groups, and I always have some fun. I stand up in front of him, I say, let me see a show of hands. How many of you people are totally opposed to initiative in your organization? Let me see a show of hands. All of you who are opposed to initiative, let's say a show of hands. Well, obviously, everybody looks at me like I'm an idiot, and nobody raises their hand. And then I say, okay, well, what are you doing to create a climate within your organization that encourages people to show initiative? Or are you more of a zero defects kind of person? Poor old Yule had been raised in the school of leadership by a guy named Stonewall Jackson, who had a very hardcore a leadership style, which I th would summarize very quickly as watch my lips and do exactly what I tell you, and then come back and start staring at my lips again, and had more people under court-martial charges than the rest of the Confederate Army combined. Not a leadership development experience that at a critical moment is going to cause him to make a difficult choice that requires initiative. Nobody's ever asked my opinion before, okay? And what's curious about that is on the second day, on the Union side, a colonel by the name of Strong Vincent, in a very parallel way, uh, has the opportunity to show initiative and move his brigade, violating his orders, in his case, violating his orders, and moving them up on Little Round Top because he determines that's key terrain, and that probably saves the Union from defeat on the second day. So in a way, the whole battle, you could say, can be melted down to two guys, two hills, and the question of initiative. And Robert E. Lee did not adjust his style and be a bit more direct. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. 
When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You led me to somewhere I wanted to get to originally in terms that I think in the business world, we're seeing this massive shift away from command and control leadership that's existed for decades. Actually, the military has started to, you know, because it came from the military, but the military started to move away from command and control. And, you know, uh, General McChrystal has has talked about this a lot. I love his quote. One of my favorite quotes is, if when you hit the ground uh, and the order we gave you is wrong, execute the order we should <laughs> should have given you. Right. And it sounds a little bit like what you're talking about there in terms of, yeah. I think for so long it was, you did not question authority. You didn't, you're showing the flip side of that, right? Where he didn't, he was so used to following authority. He just did what he was told and didn't know how to make a decision. But I think there's been a lot of terrible things that have happened because again, conditions changed or something changed. And it was like, look, you just don't question authority. You just do. And, and, what is actually interesting is I see so many companies holding on to command and control leadership when I think the military has abandoned it <laughs> for decades now. Yeah, you know, Robert, a quick comment on that. I think, I think you're exactly right. Part of that, I think, in the military was driven by the last 20 years of our war, because the last 20 years of our war has been a real decentralized war. Right. Primarily decentralized of, enemy, too. Yeah, decentralized small units. We haven't even done that many battalion operations, but there haven't exactly been the division in the attack right. or the core in the attack operations missions. All that requires decentralization. But the problem I think leaders have today, you know, again, on, t- on the battlefield, I'll say to people, okay, let me see a show of hands of everybody here who hasn't got a cell phone. And again, people look at me like I'm an idiot. Okay. And I say, of course, you got a cell phone. In fact, most of you have probably got a cell phone and an iPad with you. Uh, therefore, you have two devices that have licenses because it's a phone number. And in the United States today, there are more licenses than human beings. So we are about as well connected as we can be. So does that technology allow you to make better leadership choices? And we have a very fascinating conversation 
because unfortunately, while you're right, for effectiveness, there's a drive to decentralize. Technology, I would argue, works against you. And, I, and Tom and I, one time, we're doing a seminar, and we had a, a multi-billion dollar oil and natural gas company <laughs> who builds pipelines all over the world. Yeah. And, and this one guy is shaking his head, and you watch people's body language, and I thought he was blowing us off. And I said, are you okay? And he goes, yeah. He says, what you're saying is exactly correct. He says, I train these guys. I train my regional managers. I send them out to East Nowhere or West Nowhere, I should say, Texas, to uh, build a pipeline. Something goes wrong. I've trained them what to do. And what do they do? They call me. And if they don't reach me, they send me a text. And then they send me an email. And they leave me a voicemail. And then everybody leans on their shovel until I call them and tell them what to do. So my point is, there's that sort of Cassandra you know, beckoning of technology at, at the lower level. I know what I should do, and I've been trained on what to do. I got about a 95% certainty. That's what my boss would want me to do. But because of this device, I can call Bob and yeah. ask Bob his permission. We push all the decisions up unless the leader really works hard at a climate that really encourages people to be empowered. And then, of course, the other part of that is accepts a certain amount of risk that it may not go perfectly. And then what do you do? Yeah, I have something called the 85% of delegation rule that we talk about with our team where success is when it's done 85% how you wanted it without you having to be involved. I think this expectation that it's going to be 100% is just, you know, unrealistic and, and, and just causes problems for people. Yeah, it's an opportunity for inertia. Yeah, the other, I mean, the other thing, you know, where I think the rubber hits the road on this is because again, I think the military's already moved away. Look, right now, whether you're a restaurant or a digital marketing agency, you can't get people, right? right. Everything is, is more liquid. You're talking about decentralized war. you got liquid jog markets. Well, if you were stuck in rural Pennsylvania now, you could work for, if you have an internet connection, there, you can work for 10 times the amount of companies. So right. there are a lot of these leaders who their playbook has worked because they had this little company up in rural whatever, and right. it was the only gig in town, and they could be this authoritarian terrible leader and where else are you going to put food on the table? But I, I think it's going to be really hard running a command and control organization in, in a, in an environment now where there's a lot of, you know, control uh, at the people and, and be around in another, another 10 years. If you want talent and if you want to recruit, develop and retain the best and the brightest, which I don't care if you're running a military or that was my mantra as dean of the war college. My goal was to recruit, develop, and retain the best and the brightest faculty I could find. I figured if I did that, everything else would take care of itself. Yeah. Well, that same sort of mantra applies to a corporation. But I still I think you're right, Bob. I think there are some corporations and a few I've bumped into <laughs> who think this has just been, you know, kind of a, a bump in the road. And someday when this all goes away, we're all going to go back to doing it exactly as we did in December of 2019. They're not willing to understand this is an inflection point of change. And as an old general used to tell me why I worked in the Pentagon, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance less. And, and to use it, you were just fighting a different battle these days. Like it's right. just not the same battle. It's like fighting the, you know, a, the Top Gun Air Force battle. And when you're everyone's moved to drones. Exactly. It, you know, we used to say, you know, the military prepares for the, the last war. Yeah. And I, I paraphrase that and say the military oftentimes used to prepare for the last war it liked. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I know there's there's a lot of examples that you see of what are some of the key transferable lessons that business leaders can take 
you know, from military leadership principles that have worked for decades? Well, let me hit two, and I'll, I'll turn over to Tom. One place we like to start is we use a definition of leadership coming from an old soldier, but a guy named Dwight Eisenhower, who's also president of the United States and president of Columbia University. And I think that's a key place to start. And Eisenhower used to say, leadership's about deciding what has to be done and getting other people to want to do it. And I always found that fascinating because it's a brief, comes from a good leader, I like that. But actually what I really like is the second part, getting people to want to do it. It's a great definition, yeah. Because you'd think if you've been president of the United States twice and a five-star general and president of Columbia University, hell, all you gotta do is give orders and everybody's gonna leap to their feet and rush off as fast as they can run. And what Eisenhower, I think, is wisely suggesting is if you want to get buy-in, if you want to get max performance, you're going to have to give some effort to get them to buy into the direction you want to take. Now, there's one perhaps variation from that, and that is we see it in the military a lot, and that is this idea of crisis. When you're in a crisis, people don't want to you know, create a committee and sing Kumbaya, and they know we need to get going here, Okay. And the sociologists have a sexy phrase called idiosyncratic credits, which is a sexy way of saying trust. The leader builds up, and that's the second point, the leader builds up trust during normal times, and he or she spends that trust during difficult times because people just want you to tell them what to do and then to do it because they realize time is of the essence. Time is of the essence. And then the second one, then I'll pass it to Tom beyond the definition and that idea of trust, making decisions at the speed of trust, uh, would be a paradigm we like to use, which is called leadership in four directions. And we say, you know, people lead in four directions at all times. People lead those who are, you know, under them, either in business or they're the pastor of a church or the head of a football team or they're an officer in the army. That's what most of the literature is about. In some ways, it's the cleanest because there's a hierarchy. People lead their boss, and smart bosses want to be led and want to create a climate where they can be led. Doesn't do any good for somebody to tell you, hey, Captain, we're six inches from an iceberg. Six miles is interesting and useful. Yeah. Okay. People lead or are led by their peer group. Youngsters, college students really have a lot of difficulty with that. Uh, but athletic teams, you'll have, does my loyalty lie to the team or this real good buddy of mine on the team? And other organizations are like that. And then last but not least, People lead themselves, and that gets into issues of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, health, because there are countless examples, even a couple at Gettysburg, where the person in charge just wasn't physically and mentally at his best, and the consequences were near disasters. Tom, over to you. Well, um, I think that the essential lessons that we use in uh, the book, Battle Tested, the same lessons that we use in our seminars. Are, are universal from the military to the corporate world to the nonprofit world. They're universal over time. I mean, we're studying a Civil War battle and taking it into the 21st century, aren't we? Universal over time, over occupation, and even over nationality, because we, we've uh, worked with, with uh, a lot of, uh, not a lot, but some groups and organizations other than uh, U.S. And so, you get principles like in the decision cycle, time and timing, where oftentimes the time in which you make a decision is as important or more important than the content of the decision itself. Colin Powell used to tell us that uh, 
when you get 40 to 60% of the information you think you need to make a decision, make the decision. Because if you wait for one more satellite overpass or one more piece of information or two or three more phone calls or consult with, uh, with uh, John, Harry, and, and, and Tom, the situation is going to change. And you're going to be making decisions about a situation that no longer uh, was the same one that, that you were, was, was troubling you. And so Jeff mentioned leading up, leading the boss, and the corollary to it, uh, slow rolling the boss. We have examples of that uh, here at Gettysburg that we that we use, and within any organization, leading the boss. Jeff's already uh, talked about that. Slow rolling the boss. The boss has made a decision that everyone agrees, and some are going to drag their feet on execution, and so that is a, a danger for the organization. Will cause it to uh, underachieve their goals and their objectives, or simply outright fail, as the Confederate Army did here at Gettysburg. Uh, adapt, innovate, and overcome. You know, just like in the military, in, in any battle, uh, no battle plan survives the first shot fired in the battle. In terms of planning, uh, Eisenhower himself said, the plan is nothing, but planning is everything. So it's those kinds of things that we carry over from our military experience into the corporate world and the nonprofit world. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, you know, the one thing that kept coming up as you both said that, and Jeff, particularly with that definition of leadership and making a decision, because I've been talking with companies and leadership teams about this is, what is our return to work model, right? This is, <laughs> this is as big of a shift as we've had, I think, since the internet, you know, happened, you know, a company bet the company thing. And McKinsey came out a couple months ago and said 40% of companies haven't decided, 30% have been so unclear in their communication, and people are stressed and they don't know whether, you know, what the, what it's going to be. And look, you can go back to the office, you can do hybrid remote. But what's occurred to me is like people are just not making decisions. Now, there's some people making some decisions that I don't think is a great one. Like, you come back to the office five days a week or you know you lose your job i think when that team just made you a lot of money all working with flexibility the last year it you know i don't well i don't agree i i appreciate that at least putting a stake in the ground i think these leaders are all waiting for perfect information they're so worried about upsetting a third of their company that 90 percent of their company doesn't know what the model is so they're probably all looking for jobs and it just it occurs to me i don't think there's a right or a wrong answer but this is a massive failure in leadership to just put a stake in the ground and say, 
irrespective of when Delta is over or not over, this is what our company strategy is going to look like. And by the way, to something else you just said, it is determined based on what we think is the best thing for 2021 going forward, because we're not going back to 2019. So fighting the old war is probably not the right thing. I, I'm just amazed at how many companies have not put a stake in the ground on this. And their employees are dying to know what, <laughs> what, what it's going to look like. I couldn't agree with you more because what we're talking about is a fundamental shift in the organizational culture of every company. Yeah. It's a change in culture. And changing culture, we used to say, culture eats strategy for lunch every single day. So if you don't get the culture right, there's very little you're going to do. Just look at Afghanistan. Just look at Afghanistan, right. Yeah. So, Perfect example. Uh, you have to, I think you're right in saying you got to put a stake in your ground, but you got to be honest with the workforce and say, hey, as I understand the situation right now, this is what I think the right thing is to do. But I got to tell you, we're in a dynamic environment. Pandemic may go up, it may go down, and we're going to be adjusting on the fly. So it's just like, don't, don't ever forget that you know your adversary, whether you're in business or in the military, the adversary gets a vote on your plan. In this case, the pandemic gets a vote on your plan. So you can vote the great plan, but guess what? The pandemic- Or your competitor gets a vote on your competitor. plan. Or your competitor. That's a great- <laughs> I think if you get if you're too extreme, and there was a major financial firm in New York, which the CEO said, if you can go to a restaurant in New York, you can come to work. Okay, well you can do that, but you know, come back to talent. Something like forty percent of all the women who are working uh, left the workforce or went or started working from home at the onset of the pandemic. Only about twenty percent of them have returned to work. Okay, many of them are mothers, right? And they have got into understanding how they can better balance their responsibilities being a parent and their responsibilities being at work. And they kind of like that. Now, this is a measurement of talent. You can probably get all the people to come back to the building, but then you got to subjectively think, am I getting the best talent or do we have to change our organizational model to accommodate talent? And then the third thing I'd say to any corporate guy is you got to define it. Don't do the loosey-goosey and say, well, a couple days a week and you figure it out. No, no. It's got to be fairly yeah. definitive, okay? And also recognize the following. And this is what leaders do all the time, and I, it just drives me crazy. They don't understand that everybody is watching them much more than they ever imagined. So let's say for whatever reason it works for you, you say, okay, our model is two days a week in the office, right? Great. And then you as the CEO Go to the office five days a week from eight o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. Within a week, guess what? Everybody's going to be in the office from eight o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the afternoon. So the leader has got to understand he or she has got to set the example and whatever that new, whatever that new outline is for this new organizational culture. And I agree with you. Look, this is, I, and I wrote a book on this and I've talked about this, this is hybrid. I mean, I've heard 10. Well, first of all, that same CEO that I think you said also said that remote work was an aberration that they were going to try to fix quickly. And then two weeks later, a report comes out that they had record, never made more money in the history of the company on a quarterly basis, on a revenue or profit basis. So to those employees, I'm sure that follows a little shallow that you know right. <laughs> they can't accomplish their work outside of the office. I'm not saying it's not important from God, but it just seems to not you know, put it together. Right. And I have the same thing where people like hybrid. Well, what, hybrid for some people is the absence of a decision. It's not a strategy. It's very different right. to say, well, do whatever you want. And we're not clear how we're supporting it versus we're all in on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We're all in for these meetings. We're all in 50% of the time. Or what I, I think it, like the strategy is key because everyone should be focused on the execution right now. But I don't know how they can be focused on the execution if they haven't decided on the strategy. Right. 
Exactly. And you also make people, and there's some research in this, which I found to be somewhat mixed, you know, that the advantage of being together is there's opportunities to interact and there's opportunities then for creativity and innovation because yeah. we exchange ideas. And, th and that's easier. You know, the great phrase is that's easier around the water cooler than, than doing it over Zoom. I think there's a certain degree of truth in that. And some research I've read seems to suggest that. Does that mean as you're redoing this, do we need to redo the workspace as well? It's not just working at home or working in the office. Perhaps if that's what we want to extenuate when people are in the workplace. And they need to be well, meeting spaces. Right. Yeah. Right. The thing that's been totally debunked at this point is the open office environment. Like the science, like everyone sitting at a desk distracting each other with no privacy is not worked. So yeah, there's some smart companies that are saying, yeah, our offices are going to be designed for meetings and collaborations because that's what it's best used for. Right. Exactly. All right, so we'll wrap up. Uh, I'll, let me ask each of you uh, what's your what's your personal favorite story uh, from the history of the Battle of Gettysburg, or the little anecdote that people might not otherwise know about. Well, um, let's go to the third day. You've got twelve thousand five hundred Confederate infantry led by Generals Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble are going to make an attack across one point one mile of open ground. I mean, there's no cover for 1.1 miles, they negotiate that terrain under artillery fire to attack an enemy position behind a stone wall. And so to me, having soldiered for 30 years, I look at that group of men, 12,500 men, and think about the cohesion that must be present that will motivate them to stay together, to traverse that ground, under artillery fire all the way over to make that attack. And so that to me is, uh, is indeed remarkable. Within that group is, uh, is a Confederate officer riding a horse. Think about 12,500 infantry marching across a mile of open ground. And there are actually five guys riding into the attack, but Dick Garnett is, is one of those five. He's riding his horse because he can't walk. Three days earlier, he'd been kicked in the knee by another man's horse. He's lame. He can't march with the, with the infantrymen that he's leading, so he's going to ride his horse. And, of course, what happens to him, needless to say, uh, the soldiers are trained, shoot the guys on the horses because they're somebody important, and he does not survive. But uh, he decided he must be there with his men, and there were ulterior motives for him having to do that, which – we don't have time for at the moment, but that cohesion, that sense of duty, and that sense of honor in his mind. And so that generates a couple stories. Yeah, I would talk about uh, two guys real quick that would illustrate a point that is key and essential. And that is, you talk about the definition of leadership. Leadership is deciding what has to be done and getting others to want to do it. There's a very important corollary, though. And that is, if you took that definition at face value, you'd have to say Adolf Hitler, Paul Pot, Joseph Stalin, Jim Jones. Osama bin Laden were great leaders. Did they decide what had to be done? In their twisted minds, they did. Did they get others to want to do it? In some cases, very enthusiastically, they did. Would you call them great leaders? God, I hope not. And we see people in the business world who, frankly, are unethical. Unethical, have little character, little integrity. They can, through fear, get a lot out of an organization. But I don't think it's sustainable, and I don't think it's max performance. On the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, 
a priest assigned to the Irish Brigade, a father by the name of Father Corby, who will go on subsequently survive the war and go on to become the president of Notre Dame University. The Irish Brigade is being sent into the wheat field where there are tremendous fighting going on and huge casualties are taken. He calls the whole uh, brigade together. The lads kneel down. He climbs on a rock and he gives the men, they're all Catholic, gives them absolution, the last rites of the church in mass before they go into this battle, which is going to be uh, very, very difficult. And as they rise, he says to them, but remember, lads, remember, the good Lord let no man into heaven that turns his back on the enemy. Okay. Underscoring in a 19th century way, that question of ethics, integrity, and character. And to counterpose that on the Confederate side, Tom described Pickett's charge. There's one soldier in Pickett's charge, a sergeant on the Confederate side by the name of Kimball, who almost makes it to the wall, gets very close, realizes the attack has failed, survives, will write a letter to his mother in which he says, basically, Mama, when I realized the attack had failed, I set the world's record for the 100-yard dash heading back across that field. But after I ran for a while, I suddenly realized I might be shot in the back. And I turned around and I faced the Yankees and I walked backwards the rest of the way across the field. Now that for us in the 21st century may sound both of those stories somewhat quaint or somewhat archaic, but to me, they underscore that essential point of ethics, character, integrity as a bedrock of good leadership. And it doesn't matter if that's in business, not-for-profits, religious life, the military, or what. Well, that's a great story. And I, yeah, I think it has a lot of applicability across the board for, for leaders. Sadly, yeah, I think the uh, social media has become the, the mechanism for shooting people in the back uh, <laughs> these days. So uh, Tom and Jeff, how can people learn more about both of you and your work? Well, first of all, they could go to www.diamond6, and it's a spell out six, leadership.com. That is our website for the leadership workshops we do at a variety of places. One, of course, is Gettysburg. We also do Pearl Harbor, and we can do uh, the leadership workshop using Gettysburg anywhere using film, best done on the battlefield. Same for Pearl Harbor, best done in Honolulu, but we can do it anywhere. Uh, as well as other things we do so using, as I mentioned before, Yorktown, Watergate, and other things. That's about the best place. We're both on Twitter. We're both on LinkedIn and certainly available to be contacted there. Uh, and obviously, we're delighted if anybody reaches out to us, either about the book or the leadership workshops we do. All right. Well, thank you again, both for your service and for sharing your, your stories with us really timeless lessons that I think everyone can take away for, for leaders of, of today and tomorrow. Thanks very much, Bob. Bob, great to be with you. Thank you. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Tom, Jeff, and their book, Battle Tested, on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. Thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. 
On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.